his first year at university. Uh, and while at university, he had the opportunity to stay in student halls. But in his second year, he's got to find his own accommodation. And so he's made a few friends over his first year. And so they begin looking uh, and investigating a few options. Um, they find one particular property that looks, one, one house that looks particularly promising. It's just a, it's a short walk from the university campus. They think that would be great in the morning. Um, and they go to inspect it. Uh, they make an inquiry. It's still free. They go and inspect it. Um, however, the day they go to see it, it's an exceptionally wet day. When they arrive uh, at the, the front gate and look at the house, it looks great. It looks great. So it's, it's just had a new front door fitted. They can see double glazing uh, in all the front windows. Uh, it's all had a lick of paint. It looks marvelous. But, but then they get the tour uh, from the landlord. And they get to go around the house. And when they arrive at the back of the house, they see that the scene is very, very different. Uh, there's no double glazing on any of the back windows. And so they're all dripping with condensation and all the frames are black and moldy. They see the back door that is cracked and warped. And on a very wet day, all the rain is just pouring in and pulling on the the floor, uh, leaving some of the floorboards to be rotten. Now, what would you advise Johnny and his three mates to do? Well, I guess if you're like me, you might say, unless you've got an amazingly small rent to pay, you would pass on that house. It's not an either-or scenario. You can't say, well, you've, you've got the good front door, so you don't need to worry about the back door. No, in a house, you want both doors to be safe and secure and resistant uh, from the elements. Isn't that what you want. Well, park that idea just for a moment. We've been looking at these letters uh, in the book of Revelation, these postcards from Jesus as part of one big letter uh, that was uh, written by, uh, given a revelation showing ultimate spiritual realities by Jesus, written to struggling Christians through his uh, prophet uh, and apostle John. Uh, and he uh, has written these postcards to seven real churches facing real issues in the first century. However, we've seen as we've been going through these postcards from Jesus, we've seen that nevertheless, although they were written a long time ago to people very far away, they're nevertheless incredibly relevant for, for us today in our Christian lives and how we do church together. And so over the past few weeks, we've looked at the the postcard to the church at Ephesus, and we've seen that it's a church that's committed, yes, busy, active, but it's cold. It's lost its first love and passion for the Lord Jesus, stuck in dry duty. Uh, Last week, we looked at the postcard to the church at Smyrna, and we saw that they were a church that were fearful under real pressure, facing real threats, and yet they were faithful. And this week we come to the third postcard, the postcard to the church in Capernaum, uh, sorry, Pergamum, <laughs> Pergamum. Uh, and we see that this is a church that is, um, it's courageous, it's courageous, 
but it's compromised. But it's compromised. So it's a bit like that rental house that I just described a few moments ago. Uh, It's a church where they're guarding the front door from frontal attack. They're under real pressure from the state. Uh, They've been persecuted. There's a storm raging. Uh, The wind of persecution, uh, the blast of rain is, is hitting the front door, but they're standing firm. They're standing firm. But, but, at the back door of the church, the, the values of the culture, the immoral attitudes are beginning to seep in and cause uh, real problems uh, in this church, uh, as we'll see in a minute or two. And so I want to suggest, however, that the church at Pergamum, the church at Pergamum, is not all that different from the situation that we face today. Uh, there's lots of parallels again uh, with this ancient church and our church. Uh, perhaps uh, in our own lives we are faced with mockery, uh, some exclusion uh, from the cool group. Uh, we are faced with lot, plenty of criticism. But on the whole, by and large, we're standing firm. None of that criticism is making us give up our Christian faith. We've got good arguments, many of us, for why we should continue to believe. And yet the question that this postcard poses for us is what's happening at the back door? What's happening at the back door of our churches? What's happening at the back door of our lives? Are we merely convinced in what we believe in our heads, but yet compromised in our behavior in our lives. That's a real possibility. That's a real possibility. Um, and this is a letter then, if that's us, if we are like the church at Pergamum, schizophrenic Christians, uh, believing one thing but not behaving consistently like that, then this is a letter that we need to pay attention to. We need to heed what Jesus is saying to us because it could so easily happen to us. Jesus begins uh, in, the first, in verse 13. It would be great, just by the way, if you have your Bible, could you just open it again to uh, Revelation chapter 2 uh, because we'll be referring to that as we go through. Uh, we see that Jesus begins this postcard by commending them. Keep doing this. This is, you're, doing, you're doing well in this, keep going. And so this is what we need to hear as well. We need to keep going with remaining courageous. Remain courageous. Jesus uh, begins each letter in, in much the same way. Uh, he begins by reminding the, each church who it is that's speaking, uh, referring back to the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. And then he begins with the same words in every letter. I know, I know, I understand, I care, I know. In this case, he says, I know where you live, I know where you live. Now, I appreciate if you've grown up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, if someone called you up and said, I know where you live, that might not be all that encouraging. But here it is supposed to be encouraging. It is encouraging from the Lord Jesus. It's, I know the pressure you're under, I know the situation you're facing. Uh, it's meant to be incredibly uh, encouraging. Uh, Pergamum. Pergamum was uh, the, the capital of the, the Roman province 
uh, of Asia Minor and Western Turkey today. Uh, it was the political center, the political capital of the region. And that means in practice that if Ephesus was like the New York of Asia Minor, then Pergamum was like the Washington, D.C. Uh, of uh, Asia Minor. Okay, it was the political center. But it, at the end of the day, it actually wasn't most famous for being a political center, the place where the, the, the Roman governor had his base. It wasn't most famous for that, or even for its economic prosperity, although it was very prosperous and a very big city. What it was most famous for, what it was most famous for was its religion, was its religion. And there was at least four major worship centers in the city. Uh, number one, there was the huge, massive, massive, massive altar uh, to the Greek god Zeus, the king of the gods. If you want to see it today, it's in the, it's in the museum in Berlin. Uh, this massive, massive altar. Um, and so it was a center for worship of Zeus. It was also a center for worship of the goddess Athena. Um, also, perhaps not very well known to many of us, certainly not known to me before this week, was it was the home for the temple and associated healing center uh, of the god Asclepius. Uh, and he had a symbol, an emblem of a snake. And so actually, if you get to see in, in many medical scenarios, you'll see a stick with a serpent around it. That is hearkening back to this god, the god Asclepius, the god of healing. And so it was a very, very famous uh, center for worship and healing uh, there. And fourthly, but perhaps most importantly of all, it was the center in this province for the worship of the emperor. Back in AD 29, there was a massive temple built to the emperor Augustus. Uh, and of all the seven cities that are mentioned here, this was the, the city that most passionately was devoted to the worship of the emperor. And so if you take all of those four things, these four worship uh, temples, shrines, monuments in this city, it causes one commentator to say, any of these idolatrous monuments, but certainly the four in combination, Zeus, Athena, Asclepius, and Augustus, justify Jesus' pronouncement that this church dwells where Satan has his throne, where Satan dwells. This is a city where Satan and his deceptive work was very, very, very successful. They have the same postcode as Satan, is what Jesus is aware of. And I guess that maybe a modern equivalent might be, imagine being a Christian in Riyadh, in Saudi Arabia today. You're living and worshipping in a city where the rulers of that city are engaged in the promotion of a, a different religion and want to crush your religion at the same time. That's how that you get a bit of a flavor there for how difficult and how dangerous it might be to be a Christian in a situation like that. But that's where these uh, Christians uh, had their, that was their experience. For them, it was very dangerous. We see how dangerous it was uh, in verse uh, 13. You dwell, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. 
even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, we don't know much about this guy, Antipas, uh, from church history. There's a tradition that he was the bishop uh, of Pergamum uh, and that he was roasted alive, a bit like Polycarp last week. Uh, He was roasted alive because he refused to confess the emperor as being Lord and God. He was faithful. And yet, because of his faithfulness, he was sentenced to death. What they are doing, uh, and that that is a common tactic, sorry, that's a common tactic of hostile regimes against the church all over the world, all through the ages, isn't it? Attack the leaders, imprison them, kill them off, and maybe the church will collapse. It's happened on some occasions, but it has not happened here. It has not happened here. They have, the the Romans have attacked uh, the leaders, possibly, in this church, and yet they have remained faithful. They've remained faithful despite the storm of opposition. Uh, The word that's actually used there, you remain true to my name, is actually the same word that's used in verse 14 uh, for holding to the teaching of Balaam. Uh, We'll come to that in a minute. Uh, They're holding on. They're holding on. I know it's a beautiful day, the sun's shining, streaming in the windows, lovely day, uh, but in Northern Ireland, it's never too difficult to imagine uh, a day when the howling gales are blowing up the streets in Belfast. It's not too difficult to imagine that. Well, I imagine, imagine that sort of day, and you've got an umbrella, and you've got a hat, and you're, you're holding on for dear life in case they blow away. That's, that's the picture that's used here for this church. They're holding on, remaining faithful uh, to the Lord Jesus. They know that he alone has the keys for eternal life. They know that he alone is the true king of the universe. They know that he alone is their savior. And so they're holding on to him despite the pressure, despite the pressure. Now, I know for for us today, especially in Northern Ireland and in the UK even more generally, we are not under that sort of pressure. That's not. We we enjoy incredible freedom to express and to practice and to discuss our religious views with anybody. Uh, We're free to meet here this morning and do this. And yet we all know, we all know that the atmosphere, uh, the attitude of our culture is growing more and more hostile to the Christian faith. As we thought last week, Christians used to be thought of as good living people. Looked at with a little bit of pity. Uh, Yeah, it's great that you want to be good living. I don't want to be good living, but it's great that you want to be good living. But today that attitude has completely changed. Uh, Christian and Christian views and Christian ethics are viewed as stupid, at best, repressive, dangerous, at worst. I think we've seen that with someone like Tim Farron, the leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, when when it became uh, public that he was a committed Christian, the pressure that man faced, uh, ultimately forcing his resignation. Or just last year, um, some friends of mine worked for um, uh, UCCF, and just last year, in an Oxford college, uh, the the college uh, student union committee decided that the Christian Union should not have a stall at the Freshers' Fair. 
uh, one, of the, one of the representatives from the Students' Union said this, Christian teaching uh, has been used as an excuse for homophobic and certain forms of neo-colonial attitudes, and therefore foreign students may well feel unwelcome if the Students' Union have a stall there. You see the attitude growing more and more hostile to the Christian faith. And so I want you to imagine what it would be like to be part of the CU in that college. So when the next CU event comes up and you've just had that sort of publicity, would you stand in the hallway and give out flyers for the next event, knowing what people think? Or you're at school. Perhaps you're at school, you're at um, an SU meeting at lunchtime in a classroom. Uh, And you finish, and it just so happens you are in that classroom for for the next period. So you stay on and your SU friends go and your other classmates pile in. Uh, And as they pile in, someone lifts a book, holds it up and says, who owns this? Who owns this Bible? At that point, do you bravely say, yeah, that's, that's mine? You see the, pre- the pressure. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to remain faithful and to, re- to keep going public with our allegiance to the Lord Jesus. It's enormously tempting to keep our head down, to keep our mouth shut. But these folks in Pergamum, they were remaining faithful. They were courageous and courage is what we all need. Courage is what we all need. But just with those couple of examples, and if you know your own heart, as I know my heart, you know that courage doesn't come naturally, does it? It doesn't come naturally. And I find it incredibly encouraging that Paul himself, the great courageous apostle Paul, in passages like Ephesians 6, has to ask the church to pray that he would be bold. Even Paul had to pray that he would be bold. Courage is what we need, so we need to pray for boldness, to live and to be a light for Jesus wherever we are, in the classroom, on the campus, in the office, on the school team, at the school gate, in the the sports team or at the school gate. These folks were doing well. The front door was well reinforced, well guarded. They were remaining courageous. Yet Jesus drops the bombshell in verse 14. He drops the bombshell. He effectively tells them that although they have been been courageous, they are also at the same time compromised. They have left the back door unguarded and all sorts of unhelpful values and attitudes from the culture around have seeped in and are causing a rottenness in their church and in the faith of individuals. Because what you need to do, just like Johnny at the beginning, you need to have a secure front door, but you must also simultaneously have a secure back door. And so you need to remain courageous, but you also need to resist compromise. Resist compromise. Jesus says in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Uh, There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. 
Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching, teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know very much about these Nicolaitans, who they were, what, they, what precisely they believed. We, we don't really know. There's all sorts of guesses. But we can, we can work out a few things because of what Jesus says here. Because Jesus compares this group in their day, the Nicolaitans. Uh, he equates them, he compares them to Balaam uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and what he taught and his counsel. Um, now, for, for some of us, this is a pretty obscure Old Testament reference uh, buried in the back of the books of Moses there in Numbers chapters 22 to 25 and pops up again in chapter 31. Uh, the story that Jesus is referring to, alluding to here, is the story of when the, the people of Israel, rescued by, and by God through Moses from Egypt... Uh, when they were rescued from slavery, they traveled through the wilderness to the promised land, Canaan. And as they traveled uh, to the promised land, uh, as a huge nation of people, they came to the border of another country, the border of Moab. And Balak, who's referred to here, was the king of that country. And he was terrified that they were going to invade and take over. And so he thought the best defense is a good offense. And so he was going to try to attack them. Uh, but they'd already got a good reputation as being good fighters. And so what he did is he hired Balaam. Now, Balaam was he's a bit of a mysterious character. He seems to have been some sort of prophet, a bit more like a shaman or a witch doctor. Um, and what he seemed to be very good at was cursing people. When he cursed you, you things went bad for you. That seems to have been the pattern. And so what... Balak wanted to do was get Balaam to curse the people of Israel so that when he led his army against them, they would definitely win. They, he wanted full frontal attack. And so he hires Balaam. Balaam says, okay, in the end, okay, I'll do it. But every time he opens his mouth, every time he opens his mouth, rather than cursing, God intervenes so that the words that fall out of his mouth are all blessings. Every word. <coughs> And so Balak is frustrated. But Balaam is um, greedy for the reward that Balak has promised him. And so he, while he recognizes that full frontal attack's not the way to go, he suggests a more subtle approach. Here, here's, here's, a, here's a better idea. Let's, let's, try the, let's try the back door with the people of Israel. And so what he suggested was... You pick out, Balak, your most beautiful women. Send them all to the border of Moab to mix with the, the Israelite men. Entice them to have sex together. And if they do that, if they compromise there, well, they'll definitely be able to be enticed to worship your gods. And when they do that, then their own God will be angry with them. And he will punish them. And he will do the work for you. And that's what they did. That's what they did. So when full frontal attack didn't work, couldn't send an army against them to attack them, they were undone. They, they came to, dis, to devastation and ruin as a people because immorality seeped in through the back door. And so Balaam is then a prototype 
for every false teacher that would suggest that God's people compromise, fit in, behave just the same as, share all the values of the culture around. And so Balaam uh, is then compared to these, te- these Nicolaitans. Now it seems then that these Nicolaitans were effectively coming to the church at Pergamum and saying, hey guys, it's, it's, all, about, it's all about grace, man. You don't want to chill out about those rules. Don't, don't worry about the rules. You're, look, it's really sad that you're missing out all because of your awkward principles. You're missing out socially. You're missing out socially. You all know that actually it's at the temple, at any one of these four temples, that's where, that's where social occasions are celebrated. That's where feasts are celebrated. That's where news is shared and gossip is passed on. You're, you're out of it. If you're not going to the temple, you're missing out socially. You're missing out economically. Because you know that it's actually at the temple that, you know, deals are done. Networking happens. You're left out of all of that. And yeah, sure, if you go there, you may have to offer a little bit of incense to some of these other gods to appease your new clients. But, yeah, but sure, if they're not really gods anyway, and it doesn't matter. You're missing out socially. You're missing out economically. You're missing out sexually. Because it was at these temples that there were all sorts of cult prostitutes. And everybody's doing it. And there's no harm in it. It's just a bit of a release. Go on. God wouldn't want you to be stuck in a corner with no contact in the world. He wants you to be in the world. You see, it all sounds very initially very plausible. And yet, not too long, it doesn't take too much time, does it, for these Pergamum Christians to be saying one thing privately, but then doing another thing publicly. So they're saying one thing privately. There's only one true and living God. God uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one God. And yet publicly, in their behavior, they're implying that there's more than one God. They're saying privately, oh no, God's designed for sex inside the safety and security of a marriage, committed marriage relationship between a man and a woman is the best way. And yet publicly, they were saying something very different with their behavior. Full frontal attack hadn't worked. They'd remained firm. And yet, Satan is very clever. He's very subtle. He's very deceptive. And they had compromised, dishonoring the name of Jesus and discrediting uh, their witness. And I want to suggest that that can happen to us. That can happen to us very, very, very easily. I don't think, actually, uh, we do that badly against the full frontal attack. And so there's folks like the New Atheists are coming out writing books saying Christianity is ridiculous. Uh, We get all sorts of ridicule in the media. Uh, Certainly any comic that you listen to, if he mentions Jesus at all, it's to take a dig at him. Um, We see there's plenty of full frontal attacks, but I don't think very many of us will completely crumble when we hear those sorts of attacks 
or face those sorts of arguments. We have marshaled, hopefully, some good arguments to defend the Christian view. I think we're doing okay at the front door. It seems pretty solid and pretty secure. But the danger is the back door. The back door. We, know, we all like to be liked. I think that's normal for all of us. We don't want anyone thinking that we're weird. don't want anyone thinking that we're stupid or bigoted. And so the temptation for us just to conform, to do what everyone else is doing just to fit in, is enormous. It's enormous. And pretty soon, if we are just going with the flow, behaving, believing one thing, but then behaving just like everybody else, then pretty soon we will be seduced away from faithfulness to God. That's inevitably what will happen. There's a force of gravity there pulling us away. And so very quickly, I, I have, I've seen this in the lives of Christians who have come, and in my job they get to sh- I get to hear their stories and their experience. There's folks who believe, still believe all the right things, still believe all the right things. They can recite the catechism, and yet they're still sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're still getting wasted at the weekend. They're still engaged in some dishonest practices in the workplace that pricks their conscience every so often, but not near as often as it should. You see, it's an incredible temptation for us to just fit in, to resist compromise that is really powerful and really subtle, is really difficult. The devil is like a roaring lion. He can do the full frontal attack, and he sometimes does. But he's also described in the book of Revelation as a subtle deceiver, a serpent who slips in the back door. And that's a challenge I think we all need to hear. So the question then is, how can I reinforce my back door, as it were? How can we as a church reinforce the back door, remain committed and faithful in what we believe in our heads, but also in how we behave. How can we be, have the, find the resources? Well, Jesus gives us two things, I think, that can help us in this passage. Number one, he tells us and shows us that we need to recognize the power of Jesus. Recognize the power of Jesus. Notice how this letter begins. Notice how he is described, or how he describes himself. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now this is a reference back to chapter 1 and we know this is the same sword um, that comes out of his mouth. Uh, We see it referred to again in, in verse 16. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's a weird image, and you're not supposed to draw a picture of this. It's not that Jesus, if you took a photograph of him, has a sword coming out of his mouth. It's, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the power of his words, the power of his words. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, God's words are described as a weapon, a weapon, a weapon that will defeat the evildoers, punish the evildoers, and will defend his people. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that his words carry the same power and authority. He has power, and such power and authority, that when he pronounces judgment on the wicked, they are punished. 
And when he vindicates his people, they are set free. This is a threat, of course, to those who don't know Jesus. But there's also, notice who this is spoken to, this threat is spoken to. It's spoken to the church. It's spoken to the church. I will come to you. He's not going to the world, the Romans. He's going to come to you, the church, uh, at Pergamum. Again and again and again, the New Testament makes it absolutely clear that anyone who comes to Jesus, talks to him in prayer, admits their failures, and asks for forgiveness, who believes in Jesus that he really is the divine Son of God and did everything necessary on the cross for us to be forgiven, and who've committed their lives to him. They will face no condemnation. They will face no condemnation. We will never be cast out of the presence of God or cut off from his blessings forever. That's never going to happen if you've really done that. And yet, and yet, while Jesus is our savior, he is also our evaluator. He is also our evaluator. We will all nevertheless have to stand before him one day and give an account for how we've lived our lives. He will ask us the question, how have you served me? Have you been faithful to me? And we're going to have to give an answer. And you see, it's only then when you realize that there's one opinion. In the end of the day, there's only one opinion in the universe that matters. When, when you get that, when you understand that, see that, appreciate that, only then will you have the resources to be courageous and remain faithful, even when it's hard. Because you'll know, one day, I've got to stand before Jesus. That's the first resource we need if we're going to remain courageous uh, and also then avoid and resist compromise. We need to recognize the power of Jesus. But then Jesus finishes on a positive. We need to remember the promises of Jesus. We need to remember the promises of Jesus. It can be very lonely when you are the only Christian in your workplace, in your class, on your sports team. Uh, It can be very difficult when you're facing mockery and exclusion and discrimination. There's times when we're all filled with doubt There's times when our confidence wobbles. There's times when we wonder, is it worth it? Is all the hassle worth it? Well, it's at those moments then when going the other way seems attractive. It's at those moments we need to remember the promises of Jesus. There are three here. They're all a little obscure, so let me try to go through them uh, one by one. First, Jesus promises hidden manna hidden manna. Again, this is a reference to the people of Israel back in the Old Testament when they were traveling after they were set free from Egypt, traveling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. God wonderfully provided for them. If you look at this description, it's like a massive Kellogg's Frosty. I think that's the best thing I can think of. A sweet cracker-like bread, okay? Imagine a big, massive, sweet papadom, okay? Uh, That's what God seems to have provided. Uh, to sustain their lives and satisfy their hunger. To sustain their lives and satisfy their hunger. One of the reasons why we give in to temptation, 
why we compromise in our behavior is because at the end of the day, we, give in, we, we believe the lie that it's that thing, illicit sex, money, or power. It's those things that will satisfy me, not what God has. That's why we give in. But that's a lie because they will never satisfy. And there's many, many, many miserable millionaires out there that will prove it. Money, sex, and power do not satisfy the longing of your soul. And what Jesus promises here is hidden manna. I'm going to give you something that will sustain your life now, but forever. And will satisfy all the longings of your soul. You get to taste it now. You get to taste it now. When we come to Jesus, we get a real sense of our conscience has been cleansed. A real sense of God's peace and his pleasure with us. A real sense of a personal relationship. We, we get to taste it now, but when he comes again, he will give it to us in full, complete abundance. All the longings of our souls will be satisfied and we will have life forever. He promises hidden manna. Second, he promises a white stone. A white stone. As I read the commentaries on this, uh, this week, there are at least... 30 options to what the white stone is referring. Two possible ones that I I find, I think, are the most plausible. Right here, the most plausible. Number one, in Acts 26, in the situation where there's a a jury, a judge and a jury, uh, casting your vote was done by showing a white stone, acquitting the person, or casting a black stone condemning the person as guilty. And so Jesus may be referring to here the fact that they have been judged by the world around as foolish, dangerous rebels. But Jesus is reversing that judgment. He has declared us innocent, acquitted when we come to him. The second option is that before the days of um, Eventbrite, Uh, where you could uh, register for the event online and then print out your own ticket and then take the ticket and give the ticket uh, at the event. Uh, Before there were printers and paper, you were given a white stone as a ticket to get into the swanky event. These are Christians who have been excluded, marginalized in all sorts of ways, and yet they've been reminded here that because you have been acquitted, you will be admitted to heaven, paradise forever. Jesus promises hidden manna, satisfaction. He promises a white stone, acquittal and admission. And lastly, a new name, a new name. Is this a new nickname that Jesus gives you when you become a Christian? I I don't think so. I think that the name is revealed uh, in the next chapter, if you just glance over the page to chapter 3, verse 12, I think we get, we're told what the name is. Chapter 3, verse 12, I will write on them, that is the believers, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. And so if you're like me and you went to school and you had your, you had your PE kit my mum sewed my name into all of the items of my PE kit, showing they belong to me. 
If you get a new book, in fact, if any of you have your own Bible here this morning, I suspect if you open the front page, you've probably signed it, haven't you? With your name, it belongs to me. And it's a wonderful thought here that Jesus is saying, all true believers, they are, I've, I've signed my name on them. They belong to me, despite all the other names that they've been called in the world uh, of that day. Pergamum was a schizophrenic church, a schizophrenic church. At the front door, they were courageous and remaining faithful. And yet at the back door, all sorts of worldly values had seeped in. Jesus says, don't be like that. Do not be like that. They needed to stop and turn around. We need to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and to me this morning. And the way we resist compromise is by remembering the power of Jesus, recognizing the power of Jesus and remembering the promises of Jesus. We're going to take a moment and we're going to just have a little bit of space, just a tiny little bit of space, for the Holy Spirit maybe to put his finger on an area of your life that you feel maybe you have compromised. Things that you've said and things that you've left undone, things that you've done, that now you feel regret and you need to put a stop to. We're going to take just a moment just to let the Holy Spirit do that and to respond, to recommit to the Lord Jesus before we share in communion together.